Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guest this week is Evan Lucas, Chief Market Strategist of InvestSmart, Market Commentator and Founder of the Lucas Review. Uh, We were just having a chat before about isolation in Melbourne. Seems we're not going to know much about what's going on from old mate Dan Andrews until probably Monday, if I'm not correct. That's what he's certainly telling us Um, and certainly what he's been saying for several weeks that we have to wait for the state of emergency to run out on the uh, 11th of May before we get full understanding. And I think also for anybody in Victoria that is listening in, it's very, very clear that he is the most conservative of the premiers with regards to, to lifting restrictions. And, and I think that also needs to be part of your thinking. The probability in Victoria anyway of being able to go to the pub by Christmas, and that's I think a fair idea, is still pretty pretty remote in my view. Um, yeah. I, I don't think you can go past the fact that he is going to be very, very conservative the fact that he's very strong on the idea that schools can't go back in term two and there's even questions that they may think about term three if, if we do see spikes like we're currently seeing with cedar meats, etc. cetera. Um, Victoria, I think, will be a bit of an outlier from the rest of the country, unfortunately. What, what do you think, um, you know, if you'd probably asked either of us two, three months ago whether this would be the reality of life, it's quite obvious that... Neither, it's a big no. Yeah. Neither of us would, would say that's the case. But I've been starting to think about what are the things that I would do. And so uh, as an example, I, I for some reason in the la- since November, I've become obsessed with bonsai, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've gotten deep into bonsai and <laughs> the worst timing because I can't go to the nursery that I want to go to. So that's, that's like the f- apart from that or visiting friends, at, going with friends to a restaurant, that's like the number one thing I want to do. What's uh, the the number one thing you've missed the most? That's a really interesting question. I think I'm been quite lucky in the fact that you know things that I like to do are things like exercise, going for walks with my family, which you're still technically allowed to do. So yeah. I, I have been doing a lot of that. I do miss the fact that there is no sport. I do miss yeah. the fact that I can't go and watch the footy, which – I'm okay with, and I must admit, watching the first round with no sta- with no people in the stadium was the most boring, bizarre, slightly absurd games I'd ever seen. I, I know they're going to bring it back, and, and you know the AFL needs to. I mean, if what we're talking about here with regards to not just you know what's going on with COVID, but for obviously you and my background in in finance and economics, it's it's it, the to watch what's happened to the NRL and the AFL with regards to 80% of people involved with the AFL mm. being stood down in, in what they call soft cap expenses is just shows you how unprecedented. And that word has been used by everybody. But the way I describe it at the moment, the other thing, getting back to your point about, you know, two months ago, would you have thought this happened? No, nobody did. Not only that, even the World Health Organization points out very clearly that doing what the world has done and also what states have done, which is shutting down borders, was actually seen as not only unconscionable but but actually not necessarily best practice. Now, some would argue that clearly it is best practice. It's, it certainly helped us here in this country. But it also, mm-hmm. you look at it from the point of view that this is those questions you got at uni. 
you know, that, that sort of what if question, what would happen if you somehow completely destroyed the whole supply demand curve or what would happen if you completely just shut out one part of GDP? And in this, you know, in this case, it's consumption, right? So mm. in Australia, 55, 60% of our GDP is consumption. And when you talk about consumption, it's things like education and tourism. People don't see that as a consumption thing when you hear the word consumption, but it is. And it's also one of our biggest exports and that's the other part of this. So yeah, I look at, Unprecedented is is the only way to describe it. But at the same time, what is what is happening here is is never happened in living memory. Anybody alive? This, yes, they compare it to the Spanish flu, and you know you can argue the health sides of it. But in terms of the effect, that's clear economically, and it is something that we will never forget. And I think that's the other part of this is that nobody will ever forget what happened in twenty twenty and no. how the world reacted slash changed because of it. Well, I saw um, obviously trawling uh, Reddit is a good place for understanding where um, diversion ideas originate from, particularly in the world of finance. You've got the um, funny little groups like your Wall Street bets versus finance versus personal finance, all these different groups. But there was a really smart photo edit, let's call it a meme, that I saw the other day. And it was a... Yeah, it was a mother and a father. And they're, oh, yes. they're like this. Have you seen that? Oh, sort it. of, it's amazing. Where, you, where you're talking about the, the mum and dad that are standing on two sides of what is clearly a rock face or a cliff face. Yeah, like a rock face. And they're we, throwing we their baby pre- from one to the other. And one of them says, yeah. one of them's the GFC, one of them's COVID-19 and the baby's 2020. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, that's it pretty much. <laughs> I feel like that's a br- um, you can't have the – this current or impending financial crisis without COVID-19. And it's weird because, see, people compare it to the Spanish flu, but I don't think it's a fair comparison because in back in those days, we didn't even have antibiotics, right? And people still had weird beliefs around how disease was spread. But now we know how disease is spread. Politicians in particular, leaders know how disease is spread. And no one wants to be that guy that made the decision to open the economy and then have hundreds of thousands of people die in the process. I know you Donald so Trump this, does. Yeah, unless you're Donald <laughs> Trump. We're in this awkward position now where, you know, back in 1920, if this had existed, it just would have ripped through the populace and it would have been over within six months. Maybe, yes, you would have had two ways, but it would have been over and it would have overwhelmed your system just like the Spanish flu did. But now we've just sort of got this prolonged um, exposure to this thing until we get to this theoretical endpoint, which we don't even know if it's possible, whether it's vaccine, therapeutic, whatever it may be. Um, And it's it's just very, very different. And that's I think that's also why at the moment, like – forecasting is the next question that comes from that. So Spanish flu is interesting. I mean, there are certainly we know from their reactions that they understood about social distancing, that the issue was that the way it was spread was different. Communication, I think, is the other part of this. It wasn't as good. Um, Mm. So, you know, you had returned soldiers from the First World War who brought it back on, you know, all their transport ships. There is many, many stories about, you know, soldiers that had been away at war for four years getting back to Australia and being told they couldn't get off the ship because they were affected. Jumping, jumping ship. There's at least three examples in in Western Australia where where four or five troop carriers got back. Soldiers jumped ship, went into Perth, and away it went. Uh, same also in Melbourne and Sydney. So they sort of got it, but I, I completely understand your point around the difference now is is communication, the understanding about how pandemics and epidemics work. Um, you're right. This the difference is the end date is unknown, uh, and I think that's in its own sort of scenarios is also why. At the moment, I think there are some people that are starting to get a little bit complacent with that. And I know we'll talk about the seed of meats in a minute and what's going on with that whole. I also think people adapt much, much faster than people realize. Um, Mm. That is also probably where this 
transition is most people wouldn't have believed that the community as a whole would have reacted as positively and that is the, probably the word to to the restrictions and, and have obeyed the rules pretty closely um the other part and this is where i getting back to my whole point around this whole the idea of forecasting and what have you i think it's the moment it's almost obsolete i mean the yeah. RBA, the RBA is trying to tell you that the unemployment rate is going to get to about ten percent in Australia. That inflation may fall to as low as 0.5 uh, in the second or third quarter. Uh, blah blah blah. I, I, they're just magical numbers, in my view. I mean, they're, they're yeah. very open to the idea that no, that's not likely to happen. But it also gets down to you know forecasting of the virus itself. I mean, back in end of February, start of March, when the, you know the numbers particularly the ones from the imperial college of london or what was coming out of oxford and then even now csro here they would you know the 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 predictions were were horrendous um Mm. in terms of what they were saying and it also explains government policy and how it moves because again if you look at it forecasting was done on modeling with very very open variables and that's the other question about all this is that there are variables like they didn't expect international travel to be completely shut down. They didn't mm. expect borders to be shut down. They didn't expect that the population would be so um, would adhere to restrictions like they have. Um, and we were, you know, as a nation, we're hearing that on on the media, you know, day after day throughout the back end of March that you know if only seven out of 10 adhere to it, we're basically going to hell in a handbasket, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this is the other thing about this whole scenario is that there will be a lot of questions going forward about forecasting um, and mm. the way it's done. And I think that's also very interesting in terms of how it filters into a lot of other things as well, like markets, like economics, because clearly forecasting, it's always been a, a little bit crystal balling, but um the metrics people are using clearly have to be redefined and much, much tighter. Yeah, it's it's funny. This is reminding me of a conversation I had yesterday with um, a guy named Nick Hodges who is um, former head of innovation at organizations like Foxtel, News Corp, uh, the AFL, um, and now he's a consultant. He's come from Adland, sort of working in, the, in organizations like WPP is sort of their head strategist over the years and he was saying that this time has been very good for unearthing what value there is in sound grabs which is basically mm-hmm. none yep. <laughs> which which i really enjoyed and and he was saying that that everything seems good in hindsight but um you know if, if you read from the howard marx's of the world and the warren buffett's of the world uh most of the time if you look at a a forecast or a commentator and you you document you know what were their actual predictions and then read them back to them most of the time uh they're either a lucky idiot or they're not very accurate at all correct so i think that i think that what this has done what i think it'll do for media is that you want to hear from more sound voices i feel like a lot of people are searching that out anyway i mean from my own personal consumption of uh, media, particularly in the last few months, I've searched for people who are specialists in the medical field. Let's say they're they're specialists in emergency ER, or the epidemiologists, or their pulmonologists. You know, or or anaesthetists. I always get that one mixed up. <laughs> it's a great word. Um, <laughs> it's a great word. But but people who have sort of a neutral standpoint and can just give you a position here and now. And they have a practical um, experience to it. Like they see yeah. it, live it, breathe it, understand it. Um, and they therefore give you not only the practical view, but the more realistic view in terms of, of how they see it. I mean, if you listen to them, I mean, I, I too have been speaking to them in sort of the world that I do um, to sort of get a gauge on, on how people's reactions are going to be going forward because in my world you know working in in funds management working in 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 sort of investment we've we've needed to know what what the medical fraternity thinks and how they think about it and most of them are pretty practical about it most of them say look yes this could happen we believe more likely that you know what has currently transpired is more likely are they optimistic pessimistic about a vaccine or some form of you know drug to facilitate the 
the actual treatment of the virus and they all say the same thing which is that yes we are um the difference they say that this time is is what they're quite surprised by is the speed and what i mean by that the ones that i've spoken to i'm not sure about you jordan but the ones that i've spoken to that the speed at which the world and i'll come back to a minute the world is working on a vaccine and also treatment mm. drugs has been astounding so what i mean by that normally they talk about the fact that there is actually more under normal circumstances a competition um, which hampers time so if you look at a simple vaccine for some form of simple virus let's flu is not a good example but let's sort of take something like smallpox for example which obviously is one or two strands and, and we've already got a vaccine for it but in the past it would have taken probably about five years to go through that process um, and you were probably racing somebody in europe somebody in the states and somebody in in, in asia to be the one to, to actually work out that vaccination um all the trialing the you know all of that material they talk about takes a lot of time and money is the other part of this to get funding to actually do the research mm. and then turn it into some sort of product the difference this time around is that everybody's working for the same goal and everybody's actually happy to pass on and this is the key point that they're talking about ip intellectual property has just been basically turned around and said this should be free ip for all let's get mm. it done and that i think is the, the interesting thing and from my perspective it also might explain why things have certainly calmed down in in market world um it's my also view on that again i know i'm getting slightly away from what we're talking about but there are other things the whatever it takes from central governments and central banks is a massive reason for that as well particularly mm. the fact that the fed basically has stared down printing money yeah not only that they've also said that they will buy junk bonds and junk corporate debt that is basically staring down the market saying no 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 no, no. Yeah. we will win here go away and since yeah. that happened you've noticed that everything's calmed down significantly um and we're now yeah, just in this holding pattern i read uh etfs the other day is an is the next market that they're looking at and i was like wow okay they are really um they are not it's sort of like uh, um in lord of the rings uh the second movie battle of the had the helms deep battle mm -hmm. it's like they're just they're just they're not going to give up um when it comes to this because they have a, it seems to me they have a viewpoint that this is going to be in the grand scheme of uh markets a short term moment and mm -hmm. and they believe that markets can recover from it and by it's, short it's, they mean three years so that's the other thing yeah I probably need to sort of point out because every time they well, you know particularly in the last five to ten years we as human beings believe short term is probably actually weeks days or months um in our world it's 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 a bit longer than that, and I think that also is is the is the difference this time around. Is that they're you know they're starting to say no 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 we we are in this for the the whole of thirty six months or above. Um, so get used to it, and I think that's also calmed the market down. The thing that you mentioned before um, about everyone having one unified goal is really interesting to me, and I think because because now things have gone from you know when when you're an academic and and a researcher. Um, and my brother was just telling me this because he he got through to maths research and then changed his mind and got into software after that. Mm. And he, he would tell me around the process and say that, you know, you, you're essentially competing, you're pitching ideas. It's like being a startup. You're, you're pitching an idea to some sort of foundation or fund and they have to fund your idea and they get the credit and you get the credit and, you know, if you have this discovery, you're a leader in your field. Now, because governments are funding so much, it's it's basically um, a race to see who is the most intelligent or uh, who who can think the most orthogonally to come up with a solution to this vaccine or therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And so, I I don't think we've seen a moment like this since. Um, I wouldn't call it similar to the Manhattan. It's like a decentralized Manhattan project in a way. Yeah, interesting point. Um, obviously, the Manhattan Project was used as a way to end the Second World War in <laughs> some respects. Um, you're right. The other part, there is still a still a private enterprise view to this that some people find a little bit apparent, which is that there is clearly firms out there racing to be the 
backer of the right horse, inverted commas, um, to have the right to the COVID-19 or whatever we're going to call it, vaccine, um, if and when it comes. Um, Personally, I believe it's it's a question of when, not if. Um, Mm. They they, they will find a way to do it. Um, There is enough evidence to suggest that, you know, what's coming out of the UK and their possible vaccination out of out of Oxford is looking pretty pretty prosperous. There's one out of the University of Queensland that's also looking pretty reasonable. The Chinese apparently have also got a pretty somebody will do it. Uh, it's a question who ends up having the rights to it. That'll be the interesting mm. question. Um, the other thing is the manufacturing of it. Um, will that's will, the hardest part. Yeah. And that's also getting back to your point about, you know, the collaboration then on to the next step of of actually, as your brother was talking about, of, of being backed, which is will the company, government, whatever it is, who finally gets the one, th- you know, the, the vaccination that works, finds herd immunity, you know, actually shows that it, it does actually do what it's supposed to do, which is vaccinate against the, you know, the, the, the issues that come with COVID-19. Will they allow that information to be, released to the world um, and have it manufactured in, in other nations that that's that for me is this will be the telling factor about how this whole scenario has worked or will they you know obviously keep that to themselves and therefore look to the idea that the manufacturing will be done in a certain hub and if you want access to it as a nation you've got to pay for it um mm-hmm. This is where I think there's also arguments at something like the World Health Organization. The argument there should be for the good of the world, um, that it should be funded through the WHO, and that's where government funding has already been headed towards, blah, blah, blah. And that's that's my view. But um, that is in the future. And again, don't want to forecast that because that is a hard one to look at. <laughs> Come on, give us that sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. And give us that sound bite that you're like, yeah, don't, don't, don't look for sound bites. And this still actually getting back to that, probably what I was, I was thinking about when I was when you were talking about that. I love that term because the other thing that I believe should have happened, and now I think still doesn't happen enough, but it's getting better. People that actually talk that can't admit mistakes, but also putting their hand up and say, I have no idea. Um, yeah. And, I, and that's what I'm trying to sort of say with this is that, you know, people are asking the question, what's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. Um, I, do, I genuinely don't. And what I do know is history is the only way to, to go through it. And you sort of talked about the Spanish flu before. And, and in my world, what I do know is that there will be a recovery. There will be an economic, you know, recovery whether it's v-shaped u-shaped or l-shape it will happen um it's just a question of time i know also markets will recover i mean an example to give you right now is if we look at just the asx 200 everybody talks about you know oh, it's such a risky thing blah 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 and that's true but if i look at from for instance may 1st 2000 to april 30 2020 that's 20 years the asx is up 77 percent on a capital basis and on a total returns, it's 313%. Now, the reason I raised that is that during that last 20 years, there's been some pretty amazing events. September 11th, bear market of 2002, the GFC, the Euro crisis of 2011 and 12, the China hard landing story of 2015 and 16, and now the coronavirus. Um, and that that figure that I've just told you is, is basically if you had bought the market and did nothing for – that entire 20 years, that's the return you would have got. So I do know markets come back. It's even more amazing when you start going back to 1900 and you start including the two world wars, the Great Depression, the you know the recessions of the 60s and 70s and also the, the 90s. Um, you're talking about the outbreak of polio in, in, in the 50s, all that kind of stuff. And if you look at where markets are, they are almost 30 times what they were 120 years ago. So yeah. yeah. Time, time is the question and time is the great leveler. So that's why I'm happy to sit here and say what's going to happen. I don't know. But I, what I do know from history is that things will get better. You, you sound like a guy who has always liked stories. And, <laughs> it, it, you know, it came me to think, I was thinking, you know, I, I initially found your work as a, a market commentator and, you know, I followed you on Twitter since, ever since and, you're at Invest Smart today as a chief strategist. Mm-hmm. You, you've obviously been in charge of guiding commentary and strategy across, uh, let's say, 
at least at this organization, but others as well. Yep. You've also had client-facing roles mm-hmm. in the past. So I, I guess I'm curious, where do you think your personality leads to a, a strong suit as a, a strategist or analyst in this area? Yeah, interesting question. I think storytelling is a very interesting way of putting it. Um, I've never really thought of it that way. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it, actually, now that I sort of sit there and look at it. I, I think I've also always just enjoyed the wanting to understand, I think, is a way to look at it. I've always thought that one of the the key things that I think I learned when I was going through school, particularly school was a big part of my growing up and my you know personality. Um, I was very, very lucky to where I went to school and – the one thing I remember most, and I'm sure everybody has the same sort of story, is that the the things you remember most are those that mentored you the most. Um, uh-huh. And I, I always found those that gave you drive, gave you push, helped me particularly um, in wanting that understanding um, and then also wanting to give back. The other thing, I mean, you sort of ask about storytelling and, and, and getting into strategy. Strategy is that. Strategy is understanding history, understanding previous events, understanding what we know now to try and at least hold you in a direction that can help you in the future. Um, what, you know, what have we learned from, from the past is, is always something that's quite interesting and that's where strategy also falls into it. So if I also look back at my career and basically look back pretty much since I left school, the difference that I also always remembered is that there were several different groups of you know, individual people that have certainly helped my career and pushed my career. And I remember thinking to myself at the time of those people going, what age are they at that point? And I know what they were. I won't say who they are, but they, they, but I, I'm now at their age and I've sort of come to their realisation that the other thing that I should be doing is is doing the same thing to the, to the people that are were my age at the time coming back up. Uh-huh. Did, did you, what did you think you were going to be as a kid? Huh, what did I think I was going to be as a kid? I actually originally was sort of fascinated by what we've been talking about, which was medical, and and I think I uh-huh. wanted to be a doctor. At least I was told I should probably be a doctor, and then I went into that sphere. I did do health science for my first degree, got lost in it. And what I mean by that is uh, I think the first time you go through university, because I did, I did my undergrad and then I did a master's, is that you can – feel yourself being a number but also if you do something that you realize when you're in the ages of between what 17 and 23 somewhere in there most of you do university and and finish it that you realize that what you thought you wanted to do you don't um and i think what i realized was that i just i didn't particularly enjoy the way med was was working for me i didn't I love the content, but I didn't like the prospects. Um, and I also found other things that annoyed me about the whole thing. And I got slightly despondent with it when I look at it from my second and third years. Deliberately wanted to finish it because I knew I wanted to, but I got despondent with it and probably didn't try as hard as I should have, all that kind of stuff. But what I did start to realize and what I started to always love was I did love economics and I did love that sort of – economics in my view is a combination of – science and engineering um how does yeah. one thing work to push another blah 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 and, and how does the interconnection of this and that and the other thing you know actually you asked me at the start what do i really miss um i love travel i love all that kind of stuff and, and moving around and seeing different things around the world and that's also what i saw that came with with doing that space is being able to see the interconnectivity of, of globalization you know why does you know a 280 character tweet from the president of the United States at the moment move 180 billion dollars US dollars of value inside 20 minutes. Um, yeah, that all that kind of stuff was what was just like that is just it just blew my mind and, and that's where I ended up where I ended up. Yeah, and it's it's funny you mentioned how you grew despondent. I remember having a similar thing. So I was I was studying commerce. Well. Uh, I'm just trying to think back to what I did like this uh, double degree. It was accounting, bank and finance. I was obviously more intrigued on the um, the finance side, but my my dad was like, you know, cl- classic wog. Like, you know, he, he was in manufacturing, owned a manufacturing business and was like, oh, you, you've got to be an accountant. You've got to be a lawyer or whatever. Yep. And I, I hated that. 
and I knew I was never going to do that, but I knew I was going to go into finance. But I had a period in between while I was studying that I got really deep into wine. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I same thing, I, I fell out of love with it. I just realized you basically had to be a prof- – I was a sommelier, like a junior sommelier at the press club in the city while studying as well. So, I was doing – 40 hours there plus 25 contact hours at uni. And um, I completely burnt out and just hated the thing, even though people thought, okay, this is what he's going to do. And uh, I think when you have those moments, you sort of just realize what are the, the things about the jobs that you particularly like and then you take it into something else. And for me, it was telling a story. I just liked – I'm fascinated by people, history, things um but i didn't really know that at the time and you sort of just learn that later on in life and it's it's funny how hindsight is so valuable in that regard i think to pick you up on that one that's quite interesting i'll probably ask you a question yourself is did you find that your your career progressed more because all of a sudden you just sort of followed things you enjoyed rather than sort of just doing that and did you also find that your career progressed because it just sort of moved in ways you didn't expect and, and you just embraced it? it. What it made me do is it made me voice what I wanted to do, if that makes sense. Yep. I think, I was, I, I think I've always been an ambiverted person. I can be introverted, but I like to, to have conversation and have deep conversation. And I think what it made me do was just really voice what I wanted to do. And I don't think if I'd had that moment, I would be where I am now. Yep. My actual first job was out of uh, hospitality and, and my first finance job was at Go Markets. But I was never hired for the job I ended up doing mm-hmm. because um, I've, I, I, I learned what it is that I wanted to do and I pushed myself into that direction. And I think that initial stage in the hospitality sector really helped with that and particularly that burnout stage. I remember it so vividly, actually. I remember once having a complete uh, panic attack at, uh, at work. I don't know what, what caused it. Maybe I didn't eat. I had some, too much uh, Greek coffee or something like that. <laughs> but uh, I just remember having like at the age of like 23 or 22, like uh, a moment like this is not what I want to do. But, yeah, that, for me that was, um, that was invaluable in – in later on in my career, I think for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it's an interesting one. Interesting one indeed. Just on that, before I go any further, the other thing that I found, just getting back to what you just said, which is also quite interesting, is that yeah, I wanted certain things, and I started to find that about the age of twenty three was when I started to actually go right. I now need to go and and find it and create my own luck. And what I mean by that is, I my first major job into this industry was that I got an internship at AB and AMRO yeah. in Amsterdam. And the reason I got it was because I was coming to the end of the university and I was realizing that I didn't want to end university without having some experience or at least some opportunity um, to get a job in the industry and, and went to a careers day through Kaplan, for those of you that know what Kaplan is. Yeah. Um, but it was there that I actually ran into somebody who worked for an organization, a student organization, and basically the organization's main goal is to get a you an, an internship not in your country. So I wasn't obviously therefore allowed to do an internship in Australia, which is exactly what I wanted not to do. Um, and I, I got this internship at ABN AMRO in Amsterdam and was working in their back office as an analyst on their trading floor. And that was um, an amazing thing to sort of have a look at. Um, yeah, I, I, I did see that. I, so that was very interesting to me because I think in hindsight, that was one of the things I should have done. Mm-hmm. I did travel in Europe. I remember traveling in Europe for six months sort of as a as a local, I guess, purely on the train network. Um, I was lucky that my my partner, my now partner at the time, her she has family in Germany um, yeah. and the UK. And so we sort of really just traveled over Europe, but I, I wish I'd seen what it was like to live as a local and i know that so not only did you work at ab and amara i'm pretty sure you worked at rbs as well yeah so actually do you want to talk about that that is if you ever want an education 
be working for a bank during a global financial crisis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what I mean by that is for those of you out there that don't know the history about ABN AMRO, ABN AMRO was the Netherlands' largest bank and it was absolutely colossus inside um, and looked all shiny on the outside. RBS in 2007, 2007, remember what that that, that year was. I know bought ABN AMRO with two other companies, two other banks, a bank called Fortis, which was a, a, a Belgian bank. It's no longer with us because the GFC. Um, and Santander, which I'm pretty sure most people will know. It's the, you know, the, the huge conglomerate Spanish um, bank. And the three of them bought it out. RBS bought the majority. They wanted their Asian arm and most of their European arm. Santander wanted one part specifically and it worked very well for them, which was basically South America. Um, and Fortis got a whole heap of other things. Anyway, putting that to one side, the reason I ended up at RBS is that the division I worked out at ABN AMRO ended up at RBS. But I remember the day the deal happened and watching the CEO of both companies, which was in the room next to me, because I actually worked basically very, very next close somehow by just pure chance, signing what was at the time a set of paperwork that filled a room that would have been four by three. It was mental. It was just insane. But it was then watching the the, the catastrophic effect of buying ABN AMRO that happened for RBS. So as I said, shiny on the outside, horrendous on the inside. And what I mean by that is that they found all these shell scenarios and all these you know bits and pieces. And part of the reason the British taxpayer ended up owning sort of 80% of, ABA, of RBS was because of the ABN AMRO deal. They paid yeah. 74 billion euros at the time for their share of Santander, uh, of, sorry, of ABN AMRO. And by the end of it, it was worth just on 10. Um, that is how you make a shocking deal. Um, so, but so it, the- it was an education. To, to put this in context for the audience, at the time, so I think it was October 2007, I'm just looking at um, the Wikipedia notes on it. So it was called RFS Holdings BV, mm-hmm. uh, which that was the consortium of RBS Fortis. Fortis no longer exists. Yep. Uh, Banco Santander, I think most people know that because I'm pretty sure they sponsor Roland Garris most of the time. Oh, they sponsor everything. Um, they also sponsor a very big F1 fam. You would have seen their logo everywhere. Yeah, yeah, they're very big at the F1. Yep. Um, and apparently it was the world's biggest bank takeover today. It is still the still. world's biggest bank takeover today. Wow. Yep, yep. Um, so it was, it was amazing and, and, you know, it actually – the other thing that was quite interesting to watch from an outsider is that ABN AMRO was the Dutch were really proud of it. They were re- like it was it was it hurt them a little bit to see their 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 bank be taken over like that. Um, mm. and, but once it came out what was going on, they were also quite disheartened by the conduct and blah blah blah. And there was a lot of at the time, you know, I remember being there when I was there. I was there two thousand nine ten. Um, Watching all this happen and unfold was was quite fascinating. Um, and again, doing what I was doing was was brilliant. And that came from, as I said, all the way back from that internship. It it basically was the start point for my career and 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 learned from it. The sitting there learning up on companies that you and I sort of probably know very very well, but didn't realize where they are. Somebody like Philips. Philips is one of the largest Dutch uh, yeah. companies on on the planet, and and what they were doing, somebody like Heineken, which has now been taken over by AB Inverv and and them. Uh, if you don't know who Randstad are, Randstad are the one of the largest, if not the largest, um, HR companies on the planet, along with someone like Hayes. Um, mm-hmm. They're all these companies that you would have heard of, but you just don't realize they're Dutch. I mean, the biggest one everyone knows is Royal Dutch Shell, but. Um, yeah, it was it was a very interesting education and and what have you into that space and it just opened my eyes and, and I just was like I, I, this is what I want to do I love it I, I got to yeah. I got to find out a way but um, again I can, I can imagine in Amsterdam as well like Amsterdam is the the original home of capitalism um, and and the way the city is made is clearly defined by that amazing revolution of creating a share structure back in the 1500s mm-hmm. in uh, in in uh, I think what was uh, what was the I'm pretty sure it was the East it wasn't the yep. East India Company yeah it is the East India Trade VOC yeah the East India Trading Company was the first ever listed inverted commerce company um, 
and and they are the Dutch East India. Yeah, the Dutch, Dutch East India East. Co- Dutch East India Company was was yeah, the East India Trading Company was what it was ended up being called. And in short, basically, what you were able to do and how it worked was that you could. The Dutch were huge explorers. For those of you that obviously know a bit of your history, they had huge, huge um, footholds, particularly in places like Southeast Asia and India at the time. Um, and the trading of things like spices, who I'm sure you're all aware of, was was quite large. So what you could do is that you could actually finance by buying into a, a ship, a, a ship, or or buying or into a, tour. a, a yeah, an expedition tour. So. The ship would basically set off with X amount of ideas of what they would come back and depending on obviously what was going on also, simple economic supply and demand and whether or not tastes were moving in certain ways, the cargo they bought back would be worth a certain amount of money. Um, so you're basically, yeah, buying a, a stock, the ship, on the idea that the cargo that came back in that ship would be a certain amount, a certain weight, and, and and a product, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. The company itself, you know, basically turned into a company that you would almost recognise today in terms of how it was being run. Um, it was it was fascinating. It did end up collapsing because obviously the you know trading and and that sort of scenario of using ships is no longer that feasible. And and then you also had competition from the French and also from the uh, from the British. Spanish. The Spanish the British. were yeah. Um, and the British were the ones that probably smashed it on them um, because they started to get big, big footholds. But they were technically the first creator of, of a stock. Mm. It's um, it is all very interesting. I feel like I, I could just looking at Wikipedia, I could talk about this for ages. I was always obsessed with the Dutch East India Company. I, don't, I like, and when I f- was first getting into finance and studying, I was just blown away by this thing and this structure had existed for. 400 plus years or had been mm-hmm. changed over 400 plus years and I couldn't wrap my head around it. But I, I've got to think for you, let's say as a storyteller in the world of finance, Yes, I'm curious how, what are your sort of overarching principles for how to approach analysis? Because it's, it's sort of hard being, you know, someone who's an analyst and a strategist, you've got to both be agnostic, but also sort of support the strategy that maybe the CEO or head of funds management might define at an organization like InvestSmart? Yeah, okay. So that's an interesting question. So I've been under three different scenarios to that question. Um, yeah. Once at um, ABN AMRO where basically all I was doing was just writing the analysis and just being told to just do the analysis and then the decision-making was done ahead of me. Um, and... T- then I've also been under a scenario where, and this is the one that we do at InvestMart. This is the one I think works probably the best. Most investment banks do it this way as well, is where you have two different teams. And uh, what I mean by that is that you okay. have a, a macro and a micro. Yeah. The ones that we know the most here in Australia tends to be the micro stuff. They're the ones that you know you get the most kudos for because they're the ones that are going to be stock pickers. They're going to look at an afterpay. There you go. Let's not talk about afterpay, but <laughs> it's an example, right? You find an afterpay, you you do your research, you do all the analysis into the company, blah, blah, blah. You put it out there and bang, all of a sudden you got a 20 bagger. Um, what investment banks tend to do and what I do for InvestSmart and, and how it works with, with what I do is that, okay, how do you find the afterpay in the first place? And what I mean by that is you need to have some form of understanding about the structure of an economy, the structure of the consumer, the structure of how certain people invest and do what they do, which businesses are best exposed to certain examples of behavior, all that kind of stuff. So the macro stuff. Um, and that's that's what I fell in love with. That's what I've moved towards over my career because originally I was on the other side, but I've moved towards the macro stuff. So, you know, let's let's talk about that from the point of view, okay, what's the RBA doing? Why are they cutting rates? What do they think about that scenario that's leading them to cut rates? Is it unemployment? Is it inflation? What is it? How is the Australian consumer? Are they confident enough to consume or not? How are they consuming? Um, Because that gets back down to your question about afterpay, if you know what I mean. So are they moving towards more and more levels of debt? Because that's basically what an afterpay is. It's a a credit um, in terms of the Mm. space. You know, is the RBA making it easier? How is work perceived in Australia? That 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 that's the story, right? In terms of how you look at it. 
And it's very hard because it, it's funny you say it like that because uh, that job is so difficult. What you're essentially doing is trying to identify cycles. Yeah, um, and it's more about also just uh, just identifying space, right? So what I mean by yeah. that is that you start to drill down into the fact that actually the Australian consumer is – and well, before COVID nineteen was doing X, it was consuming. It was happy and fairly okay with with household debt, despite the fact that we kept getting told constantly that we were the second largest holders of debt on the planet, behind the Canadians um, or the Swiss, depending on which metric you want to look at. Uh, we're happy to do that. We're happy to buy property. You know, that's the, the, the Australians know property like you know the back of their hand. They they live and breathe it. You know, some people think it's horrendous and blah blah blah. I don't. I just think it's because Australians understand it as a, as an investment vehicle, um, as a, as a tool. It's a tangible asset. Australians like to change things they can touch, and that's that's why property is such a a big thing here. It's not the same in somewhere like Europe because you know the ability to change a a property in in Europe is regulated quite heavily. They have heritage and all that kind of stuff. Blah blah blah. But we also, as a, as a nation, have that as part of our culture, part of our you know, uh, and that's all that kind of stuff comes down into identifying that space so property is always an interesting one the reason i should go there is because if you have a look over the last five years even bef- just before this all happened because of that the diy industry has always been industry and that's why i've always liked somebody like west farmers because bunnings is such an incredible business yeah. um, and that comes down it's, i don't make that choice to go to a west farmers what i my job is to actually go this is the overall view, this is what I think of the Australian economy. This is where I think the advantages could come from. Um, guys, go out and find companies in that space that you think therefore have got value behind them that you can then drill from there. Um, yeah. that, that's, th- that's what I love. And I think that that viewpoint is, is useful too because at the end of the day, you can have the best manager in a business, but if they have headwinds going against them, they're not going to be able to do much. It's it's like if you're an oil operator right now, things aren't great, <laughs> are they? In comparison to a Facebook or a, or a, or West Farmers, yeah. And, and that, I, that's I mean that's a that's a very good example because what I mean by that is that it's not hard to work out from a macro perspective that the consumption of online products is only going to get bigger. Yeah. So the, what this is event has caused is you know people to adapt and the never underestimate how fast humans adapt. Right, we are seven weeks into this scenario, and already you can see structural behavioural changes happening in in the economy because of structural changes to our behaviour. Um, the one to look at is Amazon, right? Amazon's yeah. about to make a new record all time high because people are consuming online products like they're going out of fashion because they can't go down to the corner shop. Um, now they're having a bit of headwinds because unfortunately a few of their their actual employees have died from COVID nineteen over in the US, yeah. but. That's a horrible thing, but you can see. I mean, that behavioural change has been coming anyway. This has just accelerated it, um, and that's yeah, that's, the, that's the constant in this story, isn't it? Yeah, it's everything has been accelerated, and I, I think it's really interesting um, when it comes to adaption. Like, invest smart as a brand. I think I, I know that. What was the brand? It was the intelligent investor that was acquired recently, right? So, well, oh, it was a mer- there was a merger. So we're a little bit interesting. So. Intelligent Investor was started in ninety. Sorry, was started in nineteen ninety nine. So, Intelligent Investor is our um, research arm. It was started by a man named John Addis, um, with a, along with our head of portfolios management in Nathan Bell. Um, it's been around for a very long time. We as at InvestSmart bought it out about four or five years ago um, okay. to be part of our overall subscription business. Uh, another business that we bought was the Eureka Report, which for That's those of you that are out there was started by Alan Kohler and we've been very lucky. He's actually decided to come back to us and he's been back with the Eureka Report now for two and a bit years. Um, and he brings also, we've got a, what we call a subscription business. It's an online education research house um, across all ranges of products. I write for them and do videos, etc. Intelligent Investor and Eureka, we also deliberately keep separate because they are two separate ideas. One of them, as I said, is a research house. The other one, Eureka Report, is more around strategy, self-managed super funds, trading, all of the above. Um, and then the overarching company is Invest uh, is InvestSmart, and that is our funds management business. Um, and 
InvestMart was started by our CEO, Ron Hodge, also in 1999. Um, he originally actually sold it off to what was then Fairfax, which obviously is now nine, um, yeah. and bought it back off Fairfax uh, around about seven or eight years ago now um, and has been driving it ever since. The advantage of someone like Ron is that it's obviously – his bread and butter it's his baby because he started it um and therefore he, he treats it like that and then you always want a, a leader to to have that kind of drive because they they have everything invested in it um and he lives and breathes it and, and it means that we you know you have a singular focus like what he wants because he he you know as i said it's like his child yeah well it's it's interesting because um it's a it's essentially you guys offer like a low cost um, fund in different areas of the economy, yep. um, whereas a, lo- a lot of low-cost fundies sort of focus on being about tech or mimicking an underlying market, whether it's the ASX 200 or whatever it may be. So oh, I see your clear advantages as content and insights and education. Do you? What do you sort of see as that that real advantage for InvestSmart? So that's that's the, the subscription business that you spoke about. That's, that's exactly what we see it as. Um, the advantage of the portfolios that I actually basically run with the investment committee is you talked about costs. Our belief, we've done a lot of research into this and if you have a look over a 10-year period, and this again gets back to that story, talking about what we know in history, is that if you look at investment over 10 years, all managers end up coming back to the benchmark, right? Less their fees. So you can be the smartest portfolio manager in the world and, yes, you can have one or two years of really, really good outperformance, but sooner or later you're you're going to get caught. Um, a COVID-19, a GFC, blah, 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 um, is going to get your, your portfolio. Certain stocks are going to have certain issues, et cetera. But what, so what we found is that if you actually compare to the benchmark a balanced portfolio setup, diversified with all asset classes, fixed income, cash, property, international equities, domestic equities, um, that over time each fund will come back to the market. And therefore what we realise is that we therefore need to make sure that our fees are so low that they're as close as we can get to the market um, and therefore we will believe and we know we've actually started to prove it that we can actually outperform peers because what we are doing is basically creating a conservative balanced growth high growth portfolio for our diversified or an international portfolio or a fixed interest just equity uh, just uh, treasuries and also a property infrastructure fund with the maximum cost for an investor at four hundred and fifty one dollars per annum management fees mm-hmm. it's caps out so what we mean by that is that once you basically go past eighty two thousand dollars invested your fees never get bigger um, and that's because we're trying to get you as close to the benchmark we're not going to beat the benchmark that's not what we're there to do i'm there to replicate the market um, and let you know and explain how we're going and thinking about where the market's going to be to basically be the benchmark with a $451 fee per annum for those above 82K. Yeah, and I think um, this is uh, what's been interesting in finance is how much this moment and the last few years has accelerated products like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think many people would have known about InvestSmart 10 years ago, but now everyone talks about it, Um, particularly when you're on Reddit. Yeah, and not only that, the other way to look at it is the old days of, you know, being charged one percent, or no, the, the one to really look at is the old adage in funds management world, which was what they called the two and twenty rule. Uh, and, yeah. and it's when you think about it now, it's just daylight robbery um, because it was two percent management fee. So no matter what happened, GFC, COVID nineteen, all of the above, they were going to take two percent of the fund. Period. But then they would also have the 20% was the premium they got on beating the their benchmark. So let's say they needed to beat their benchmark by 8%. If they did 12%, for every dollar above the 8%, they took 20%. Um, yeah, and, and what you know from that is that investors' returns are absolutely decimated by fees, absolutely. So if you look at the comparison between zero fees and 2%, over 10 years, the difference is around about 20%, right, for your total overall take-home. It's insane, right? Yeah. It goes down to about sort of 
11 or 12 grand once you get to one and it gets lower and lower obviously the closer you get to as i said we know we can't we won't beat the benchmark. We're not there to do that. We're there to give you the basically the market set up in the diversified scenarios that you want, whether you're very conservative or all the way up to really high growth, as close as we can replicate it with the cheapest possible fee. Because the difference between, if you can think about it from this point of view, is that you've got to remember things compound, right? Total total returns sees a compounding effect. The reason I quoted that 313% for the ASX total returns since May 1, 2000 to the close of business on yeah. the 30th is because if we kept taking 2% out of that that total return per annum, so let's say you've been averaging 8% per annum total returns in the ASX, we take 2% out of that. That 6% versus 8% compounding, you can already just in your mind see the graph difference as 8% compounds every year, 16, so on and so forth versus 6, you know, Six, twelve, so on and so forth. That's, mm-hmm. and then you add that on twenty times of so many years, you can see the difference. And I, I don't even have to go further than that. It's just very, very simple, sort of back of envelope sort of calculations, or even just graphical representation. That is why we have moved that way, and and believe that that'll probably be a model that's replicated over and over again by other competitors too. Yeah, and the industry always, t- I mean, I've heard this quote reference all the time, but it was it was Albert Einstein who said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Hmm. Um, and I think that is one of the most important things when it comes to investment returns and people have just only learned that with these new in, uh, index and low-cost fund managers. So um, my hat to you guys, I do, uh, I do like the products that you offer. I've got to jump into some rapid fire questions to finish us off. Yeah. Let's get into what your morning and evening routine has looked like since lockdown. Uh, morning and evening routine are almost identical because it's basically either getting my daughter up or putting her down. Um, so that has been, it's been fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Like we have also got into a routine. We spoke about this off air before we came on what's one of your favorite things in the world it's coffee um so my wife and i we do get up we have this sort of 15 20 minute period in the morning when our little one gets up where we we're all just sitting there very you know nonchalantly just in sort of enjoying the coffee and the peace and quiet and sort of playing with with the little one and then Mm -hmm. at night it's almost the reverse it's basically again just a, a quiet period before she goes down where we all enjoy each other's company and then off we go what um what have you been watching on Netflix or other streaming platforms of late? Probably the question is what haven't I been watching? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's obviously that thing there. I mean, there's been lots of things that have sort of popped up. If you haven't seen, uh, what was it? Um, oh, Last about, Dance? Yeah, oh, I'm absolutely watching that. There's no doubt about that. But um, fantastic short program um on netflix about an hasidic jew and it's on something after oh, uh, um she's unorthodox yeah unorthodox she's brilliant um and the whole program yeah. is fantastic um that was a fascinating program I, I think to watch if you haven't seen it um i always quite like my medieval history stuff so it's just sort of anybody likes something like you know the last kingdom quite enjoyed stuff like that um yeah that's a great show yeah. uh if you're fascinated by the history of um the dark England? ages yeah and the dark, and the dark ages. yeah the dark ages and like because i i did uh i don't know if you've ever done it but 23 and me um oh, yeah, i did yeah. my 23 and me test so i've got a mother who is irish and english and a father who's greek cypriot mm-hmm. and then when i did my test obviously on on her side and when she did it as well you come from different uh haplogroups so groups of people who originated from a certain place in Europe or Africa or Asia over a certain period of time and we actually learned my mother and I that our DNA is most common in like 90% uh, of all Scandinavian countries so it's sort of obvious that let's say a thousand plus years ago we had an ancestor who was either Danish or uh, an ancestor who you know uh, their village was raped and pillaged by Vikings, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of stuff I find uh, absolutely fascinating. And when um, when The Last Kingdom comes out, I'm always watching that. Uh, yeah. I do like that. Yeah, it's quite a good one. Um, and then yeah. I just I love my UK cop shows. So um, anything on that line, Line of Duty, 
um, Unforgotten, The Fall, any of those programs we can talk about to the cows come home. So there you go. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question for you. Best purchase under $200 that you could have purchased it before this period or during the period, but something that's really sort of helped you during isolation? Pair of cordless earphones. Okay. Which brand? Uh, Friendy. 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 It's an Australian company, as in friend, I-E, at the end. Um, Interesting. The reason for it, they have actually been very, very helpful in my day-to-day job, but also because of this whole scenario, I always was into exercise, but it's obviously, you know, you want to get outside sooner rather than later. So I've actually got back into running and uh, you can stick them in your ears and away you go. And uh, yeah, it's probably made this scenario a bit better. There you go. You need your headphones at Friendly. We'll make sure we link those. Mm -hmm. They look nice. Um. (laughs) They're really good. They're a really good little pair um, and, and really good sound quality. Uh, Evan, where can people find you on the interwebs? Where are the best places? Uh, most interactive one will be Twitter for me, which is Evan Lucas underscore INV. Uh, that's where I'm most interactive. You can find me on LinkedIn too, just my name, Evan Lucas. Um, otherwise, on the InvestSmart website, so investsmart.com.au, I am there all the time doing all sorts of different pieces. Beautiful. We'll make sure we link all that so people can get on that as well. But um Evan, thanks for joining the show. Jordan, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening. 